Father God, again, as we come before you as a group with our hearts lifted up into heaven's glory, as it were, where you are dwelling, we're humbled to consider all the blessings of your grace and truth and how the word of God that you gave for our benefit and then preserved down through so many, many centuries, how that is such an incredible tool that you use in our lives. Of course, first and foremost, it's the gospel itself that's the power of God. Your power undoes our salvation. If only we would believe it. If only we would take you at your word. So, Father, I just thank you. And we all thank you here gathered this morning from the depths of our hearts where you work the wonders of your grace. We thank you and praise you. And all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished such a great salvation. Father, thank you for teaching us through your word. There are so many things we learn there about the creation, about the plan of redemption, about uh, the frailty and sin of humanity, about your plan of redemption, about the glories of your grace. And the fullness of that revelation of grace finally given to Paul and that's been such a blessing to us. So, Father, as we open your word again this morning and consider that great deposit of truth given to Paul for us, I pray, Father, that you'd open our hearts more fully to that great teaching. And may it be truly a spiritual food for each of us this morning. Father, there's so many things revealed in your creation in the seasons. Also, we see your glory. and But in each season, Father, not only the current one, but uh, think about the winter and how everything is sealed and preserved and, and reserved for a day of, uh, as it seems, coming back to life, at least in a visible way. But the life was always there because you preserved it through the darkness of and cold of winter. And then, Father, the springtime, when the buds burst forth and the flowers uh, become so overwhelming to us as we consider them and see them and are, are just transformed to, to consider the wonders of your creation. And then the summertime, when what's happening in the summer, but the, uh, the food of of our earthly existence is being produced, uh, some underground, some above ground, and then finally the harvest comes in this season of the year. So, Father, we're so thankful, and we just praise you for all the wonders, all the glory that you reveal in this realm around us and certainly in your word. Father, thank you for preserving many through this hard time that our nation, especially in several states, especially Florida, have just come through. Many also did not endure the severity of the storm. We're so sorry for that and, and just would lift up, Father, before you, their survivors and their loved ones who cared so much and are still no doubt in 
tears concerning such a great loss. But, Father, we just pray that you would use this in those that remain to draw them ever more to yourself and for many to salvation through our Lord Jesus. Father, we, we pray for those suffering so greatly in health or in other areas not even mentioned. And certainly there are many unspokens in this regard, for we all have burdens that we don't share, and some great burdens indeed. But Father, you know it all. You know what's on our hearts and on our minds, and you know the anxieties and fears that sometimes overcome us. So, Father, I pray that you'd relieve those, that we might rest in a peace that passes all understanding, even though our frames are frail and illness comes and accidents and it's a, the, the lot of mankind to, to be in this circumstance, all because ultimately of Adam, of course. So, Father, uh, I just uh, would lift up those that suffer so greatly, as has been have been mentioned here this morning, other friends of ours, Father, who have seen a great blessing as your healing hand has made the difference for them. And yet, Father, there are others who still suffer so greatly. In fact, it seems they're just one step away from being called home. So, Father, we pray that your grace would sustain them in these days and hours and that they'd be drawn close to you. Father, I just thank you for how blessed fellowship is and for uniting us with other believers who share our hopes and our dreams spiritually and eternally. Father, I thank you for the encouragement of one another and the, and the uh, instruction we receive one from the other as you uh, share with them and through them to us and from us to them concerning the riches of your grace. So we thank you so much for that. And uh, we know it's a miracle, really, that you have brought this all about. So, Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness and uh, look forward to see how you work things out here in our nation, which is in such a time of turmoil. Such darkness has overcome so many. So many have no hope. And we know why. It's because they're without you, Heavenly Father, but not really because you're right there. If only they would grasp on to that precious truth. That Paul taught so long ago there in Athens. So, Father, open our hearts now to you as we look into your word and may we receive the blessing to your honor and glory. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's jump into the part of the teaching today. It's a it's really what I've been waiting for for a long time is to get to this point where we can look at this section in Galatians 5. <clears throat> Remember, our subject comes out of Paul's letter to the Colossians and in chapter 1. And we took this, uh, this what we call it, a 
digression, but not really. Um, we changed the focus temporarily when we saw that Paul uses this word mystery there in Galatians chapter 1. And uh, I wanted to make sure we really understood what a mystery is and what the mystery is or sacred secret that was revealed to Paul for us. So Paul says there, in, and we'll look at it a little later, but we'll look at the verses, but Paul says that uh, some things were kept secret, but then they were revealed finally, and it has to do with uh, the redemptive plan of God for the Gentiles and uh, how grace now is the work, working principle according to which God is active. He is not working in the hearts of man through the law like he once was. Uh, that dispensational program, that administration has been set aside. And now grace rules, and uh, that is how God is working today. So uh, that is something I felt like we really had to understand better. And that's why we've taken this diversion over here to consider what's written in the letter to the Galatians. So last time we introduced chapter five by looking at chapters one through four a little more carefully. We'd already uh, done that the time before to some degree, but um, last time looked at it in more detail. And we saw that there are consequences for our living, consequences for our living uh, because of the nature of the gospel itself. The gospel of the grace of God has consequences for our living, and those consequences have to do, as you might expect, of course, with the abundance of God's grace and the power of grace working within us. So that's something we really have to learn more about. And so many today are caught up in legalism that they are not focused on the grace of God. They may use the word often, but not with full understanding of it. So that's why we have been spending this time here to understand that grace is a distinctive working of God. And it's very very powerful, if only we would understand it correctly and take God at his word. So we need to know what the word is that's written concerning grace so that we may take that as spiritual food. Often, each day, each hour, as those truths are written on our hearts and available for our use. So we looked at two analogies that Paul gives there, and uh, I'll mention that again here in a moment, because it does help us understand Paul's teaching about grace versus the law. And last time I, I made a focus on how legalism really cuts to the root of grace living. If you cut the root of a plant off, the plant dies. It does not have the nourishment needed to bear fruit and eventually dies. And uh, that's what legalisms do. They cut at the very root of grace living. And uh, it's a powerful teaching. Paul 
mentions this often in his letters. It's a major, major theme of the apostle, therefore, because it's so very important. Okay, so let's um, jump into it. I, I think uh, last time I also defined for you, I hope in a, in a clear way, what legalism is. So let me just repeat that. A legal, legal, I know whether you're hearing me, legal, L-E-G-A-L-L, L-E-G-A-L, a legal system specifies requirements and rewards. The one is always dependent on the other. In a legal system, obedience brings blessing. Disobedience, on the other hand, brings punishment and judgment. It's really that simple. So Moses' law is a supreme example of a legal system, but there were many others made by man, many of them sort of copied various aspects of Moses' law to make them perhaps a little more, what, doable? <laughs> that one could actually believe that they were keeping the law and that civil society could operate according to the rules of law. But Moses' law was the, the primary and uh, ultimate example of that because it was the law given by God to his people Israel. But any legal system, whether it's given by God or whether it's man-made, is similar in that obedience brings a blessing, disobedience brings judgment. And the blessings do not flow apart from the condition, the legal condition being met. Now, that doesn't mean that under God's law, Israel wasn't blessed. They were often in other ways, through mercy, for example. God did not always bring the judgment, at least at the time that the disobedience was uh, executed, right? He was often very merciful. And God did bless them. Independently of their works, he, he gave them fruit in harvest time and so forth and so on. I mean, there's no question about it. But the law itself demanded obedience. And blessing God did promise would follow, right? Uh, and the law also specified what judgments would follow from disobedience. And, and actually, the judgments in many cases were capital punishment. That's how severe Moses' law was. Okay? Okay, so we do not live under the law today. Paul makes that very, very, very clear, but rather under grace. And so what that means is that God's pouring his blessings out upon us independently of our obedience. And I think that that's a concept we really must come to understand. If we do not, we will ourselves be caught in legalisms, which is just another name for religion. And we'll find the flow of life in the tree of grace greatly hampered by that.
So it's in Colossians 1 and also in Romans 16, where Paul mentions how the revelation of this was given to him, and uh, it was for us. And he even says there in in uh, Romans 16 that the gospel that he preached was, quote, my gospel, his gospel, his gospel, my gospel. He uses those words there in Romans 16. He also uses those words elsewhere, but we won't take time to look at that today. Okay, so what that means by him saying it was part of the sacred secret revealed is that the gospel of grace wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but was reserved for a time when it could be executed as such. In other words, when God could actually operate according to it. And that required, the, uh, of course, the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's uh, where we uh, are today. And when we consider continuing on here, um, what we're going to see today, and this is our short outline, really it's very short. The teaching won't be short, but the outline is. Uh, first of all, all, all legal principles are summited in the principle of love. You hear about people summiting all the time. That means they reached the top. They climbed a mountain. They summited. All legal principles are summited in the principle of love. Love is greater than them all and completely obliterates them, you might say. Oh, my. We're going to see that more as we look at some scripture in a moment. That's the first point. Second point is that the dynamic of the Christian life under grace is given for our understanding. The dynamic of the Christian life. And it's distinctive. It's part of the revelation given to Paul. By dynamic, I mean the working of God in us. Remember what Paul said, uh, part of the mystery was, and in fact, he said it was a a sort of defining aspect of the sacred secret, and that was Christ in you Gentiles, Christ in you Gentiles, the hope of glory. So there's a dynamic because Christ dwells within us. Christ was not dwelling in believers previously. That's the bottom line. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't at work at work in certain in certain ways in believers in the past. He was. But that also is distinctive, the way the Holy Spirit works today. And we're going to be looking at that later today, but mostly next week, Lord willing, how the Holy Spirit works in a unique way under grace. But uh, so the second point is the dynamic of the Christian life under grace is given for our understanding. And we read of that really largely in Galatians and in Romans, but We'll look at Galatians today, Romans next time. Okay, so first of all, then, all legal principles are summited <laughs> in the pinnacle of love. And uh, let's look into that. 
and begin our readings there with Linda. Linda, I'd like you to read this. We've read it before, but uh, there's such a wonderful statement here. It's a powerful statement. It cuts really to the heart of anyone who is actually a legalist, <laughs> legalist, but uh, cuts to the heart. But there's a great summary here of what the dynamic of grace working in us is all about verses five and six as that. So if you'd read from Galatians five verses one through six, Linda. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify against again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whoever so of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Thank you, Linda. So you see that Paul can't help but write about love because that's at the very summit. Okay, uh, it, it just overwhelms all legal principles. In fact, they're just overshadowed to the point where they just fade away, as it were. In fact, that's Paul's whole teaching here in Galatians 5. Legal principles fade away. They're of no value. He says here, uh, in fact, if anyone submits to them, they've fallen from grace. That does not mean they've lost their salvation. It means they've taken themselves out of the sphere of God's working under grace. And they've placed themselves then back under a legal principle. But verses 5 and 6 gives us that wonderful summary of what the Christian life in its essence really is all about. I'll read it again. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. You know, if all he had said was that circumcision doesn't accomplish anything, then one could easily become a legalist in other ways, right? How about uncircumcision? There'd be great value in that. We'll place ourselves under that rule, right? No. He says, nor uncircumcision. These uh, matters of the flesh, these religious principles, really uh, don't relate to the work of God in the Spirit today. That's not something that was always true. I mean, under the Moses law, you had no option. Circumcision was required. Okay? Okay, so that's a nice two-verse two summary. I said also last time, I'll say it again now, because I think it, it kind of states the contrast here so clearly. Law makes unlimited demands that cannot be kept and can only condemn, while grace freely provides unlimited blessings through faith, which can only encourage and bless. Again, law makes unlimited demands that cannot be kept and can only condemn, while grace freely provides unlimited blessings through faith, which can only bless and encourage. 
And that's fully sufficient. That grace is fully sufficient to please Almighty God. And in fact, it's his plan to maximize the revelation of his grace in this time in which we live. And he wants to do it in and through us. Wow, wonderful words there. Paul wrote about this life of grace in Romans 5.17, and these words really are memorable. And I, if you haven't taken them to heart, you, you really should. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 17 in Romans. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. I'll also read from uh, Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. So that's another word that Paul loves so much. The Greek word for liberty, Eleuthera, is an island of Eleuthera in the Caribbean. <laughs> oh, my Eleuthera, meaning liberty. I wonder about the history of that island. It must have had something to do with slavery and liberty or something like that. I'm not really sure. Eleuthera. So you've been called unto it. <clears throat> Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled or filled to overflowing in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. So Paul is stating how love is the pinnacle of the operation of God under grace. And that's why the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And we'll look at that in a moment. But there's another scripture, I think, summarizes it all so well. In fact, it makes a statement that we should never forget. And I'd like Gail to read that for us. Gail, if you'd read to us from 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some have swerved having turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Thank you, Gail. So Paul is very clear. 
Strong and his statement here very pointed concerning false teachers. What do false teachers teach? <laughs> well, often what they do is impose the brethren with a law. They impose a law upon the brethren, bringing them into bondage. Notice that it says here they desire to be teachers of law, but they don't know what they're talking about, he says. In other words, they don't understand the law even, because if they did, they would never be promoting it. So what does he say about that? He makes the contrast between love, verse 5, and the law, the end of the commandment. In other words, the goal that Paul had when he was in Ephesus, when he charged them that they teach no other doctrine, right? The end of that commandment, the goal of that charge or commandment was love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. But the legalisms led the believers into a bondage of the flesh, really, whereby they didn't bring forth love, but rather other uh, works of the flesh, which he's going to list in Galatians there when we get to it here soon, this morning. Okay, now I did point out, and I think you need to understand, that sometimes the translations are misleading. Usually in the King James, it's not due to a mistranslation. It's usually due to the, the actual manuscripts they had at the time were very limited. Uh, they were quite good in a lot of respects, actually compared to the Latin translation, the Vulgate, which was translated from texts that were not reliable. But uh, the particular manuscripts that they had at the time in the Greek language had a word that was correctly translated edifying. And that's why you see here in verse 4, he mentions godly edifying. But really, the better manuscripts have the word for dispensation there. So rather than godly edifying, it's the dispensation of God. Rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, it's the dispensation of God, the one which is by faith. In other words, in contrast to the law, which was by works. Okay, so uh, it is. Um, he contrasts the dispensation of grace with the dispensation of law here. And in the one case, uh, the, what did the law bring forth? Well, it, love was not the result. It was rather wrangling and disputations, arguments about genealogies and all kinds of stories and so forth. Fables here he mentions in verse 4, rather than uh, love out of a pure heart. So praise God, praise God for, for love out of a pure heart. Um, what the legalists were focused on was the letter of the law and how they had, they thought, improved upon the law by adding to it to make it more livable. And that's exactly what we see today in religion, isn't it? Laws are everywhere, presumably very livable. So those that conform to them feel like they're pleasing God when actually 
It's the flesh operating. What a sad, sad thing. Paul writes about the letter of the law in 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, and uh, just read one verse, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Speaking of God, he just had said, God is sufficient. He is our sufficiency. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. And I think you know what that means. I don't want to spend more time on it now, but let's just proceed ahead with the second point for the day, which is there's a dynamic of the Christian life. The word dynamic speaks of the power source. There is a power source dwelling within the believer today. All believers have the same power source dwelling within that operates to bring forth fruit to glorify God, right? And it operates under the realm of grace. And so we see revealed here in Galatians this dynamic of Christian living under grace. And so I want us to quickly look at that today. We'll also look at it next time. But notice how Paul led up to this. Remember I said before, all the chapters leading up to chapter 5 lay a foundation, right? Paul is writing very, very carefully to those who were caught up in some false teaching that had come from Judaizers who had come from Jerusalem who were imposing the law and specifically circumcision was a large part of that they were imposing that law upon Gentile believers right and Paul considered that such a great threat that it was even a threat to the gospel itself okay so in chapter one he introduces the subject with these words he said um, he wrote there in Galatians 1, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Okay, so that's the context. It's uh, the back ground of the gospel of the grace of God, which is that God sent forth his son. His son came into this world without sin, but for sin, he gave himself for our sins, meaning he offered himself willingly, sacrificed himself, shed his own blood uh, for our sins and paid the full penalty for them, right? In order that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Okay, that's uh, verse 4 of Galatians 1. And then immediately, and I'd like uh, Anne to read these verses for us, immediately then he speaks to the fundamental issue, which was that if you add uh, or change in any way the gospel that Paul preached, then you end up with a different gospel. It's not the same. And it absolutely uh, 
it, it just is an unforgivable thing to change the gospel of grace into something else. So read that for us, Anne, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you, and you would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Thank you, Anne. Those are solemn words indeed. He says there are other gospels, but they're not other. <laughs> Again, two different Greek words here. I'll, I'll paraphrase it for you. Uh, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto a gospel of another kind, which is not a gospel of the same kind. <laughs> but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. So when you change the gospel of Christ, even in a small degree, uh, you've changed it into something different. It's no longer the saving message of Christ in that case. So, like, for example, if you add circumcision in some way, uh, you've canceled out the grace of Christ. That's what he's saying here. And the gospel ends up being affected by that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you add a legal requirement, even circumcision, which, of course, had been required under the law for Israel. So if you add any legal requirement that provides in a carnal basis, carnal meaning of the flesh, a carnal basis for holy living, which is a contradiction, right? A carnal basis for holy living today cannot occur. And he says that even affects the gospel. So going on in Galatians 1, we read of that. He writes in verse 11, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, now that's an amazing thing. If only many today would uh, uh, take Paul literally regarding this. Uh, what does he say? He said, I didn't receive this gospel I preached from man. And I wasn't taught it by man. Not even by Peter, or James, or John, right? Uh, but I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you might think that's not important as to where it came from. Well, to Paul, it was important. Why? Because false teachers had come from Jerusalem preaching a different gospel than what Paul preached, right? So Paul didn't actually need to go to Jerusalem in order to know what the gospel was. He didn't even need to go to Jerusalem to learn more about the gospel. He'd already been taught by Christ himself from heaven, right? Christ in the heavenlies had taught Paul, right? And so when he gets to chapter 2 now, he's going to explain why he eventually did go to Jerusalem. And it's for a different reason than to find out what the true gospel is, okay? 
Um, and so we read of that there in uh, Galatians 2, verses uh, 2 through uh, 9 or so. I don't want to take time to read all of that. But I will just say this, that when in verse 2 he says, I went up, meaning up to Jerusalem, by revelation. Okay, so Christ had commanded him to go to Jerusalem for a certain purpose. What was the purpose? He tells us what the purpose was. Verse 4, false brethren had crept in who came in secretly to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they, in other words, for the purpose that they might bring us into bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to a legal principle. And so this was spreading around in the churches after Paul left a, a city, the false teachers came in and uh, then perverted the doctrine. Okay, so verses 7 through 9 give the conclusion of this section and explain what happened then when he was there in Jerusalem. Verse 7, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was to Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, pillars of the church, leaders, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, to the Gentiles, and they unto the circumcision, that we should go to the Gentiles with the gospel of the, what he calls the uncircumcision, and they would go to the Jews with the gospel of the circumcision. You see, the two are different. One adds circumcision, one does not. One prohibits circumcision, the other requires it, as it were. Oh, my. Okay, let's go on then, because Paul then gives a very strong uh, condemnation to those who are turning themselves back over to some kind of legal requirement there. Galatians chapter 3. Right, Lydia, would you read for us verses 1 through 3? Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Thank you. Thank you, Lydia. That's a pretty strong condemnation, isn't it? Calling them foolish. Saying they've been deceived, and uh, he's even implying that it's some kind of satanic deception because he says, who hath bewitched you? that she should not obey the truth whose eyes, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. 
And then verse 3 is really a summary of the condemnation being leveled at them. He says, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? That's what legalism does. It leads believers to think that they can become more complete in their faith, but really they're using fleshly or carnal means, which are legal principles. It's a religious system, in other words. Okay, Patty, would you read these other verses? Then we'll be finished with this section, Galatians 3, verses 9 through 12. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Amen. Thank you. So Paul is very straightforward, very direct, very specific. And uh, I would submit to you that many today in the churches are preaching exactly the opposite of this. Trying to place us all back under law. What a sad, sad thing. But as he says, they that are of the works of the law are under a curse. Okay. Um, well, Paul goes on the end of chapter 3 and then in chapter 4 to give these two allegories. I'm not, I don't want to spend time on them today. The schoolmaster allegory and the Hagar allegory, we looked at them last time sufficiently, I think. And you saw how the schoolmaster allegory uh, teaches that it's by promise not, and faith, not by works, that blessing would flow, right? Um, even Abraham learned that, sort of the hard way, you'd have to say, Abraham and Sarah, of course, turned aside from the promise that had been given and relied on the means of the flesh to accomplish the purpose and will of God. It cannot work, right? Then the story of Hagar, and that teaches uh, uh, so much. God blessed her, nevertheless, and Ishmael in certain ways. But Abraham and Sarah were burdened down by it and uh, not uh, living, living in liberty. Um, the schoolmaster analogy is about being placed under a law, the law of the tutor, the law of the schoolmaster, which was common in the Greek culture. And that was uh, in placing children in bondage until uh, the time of their release, which was uh, when they became mature and when they were uh, at the age of accountability, when they'd reached that age, uh, then they were no longer under the law. Okay? So Paul says, the law was given to Israel until the time of Christ. 
<laughs> and once he had come to accomplish his purpose, the law was no longer applicable. You see that? That's so clearly taught there. So then he gets to chapter 5, and that's really this wonderful teaching on walking in the Spirit, which, as you can see, we don't really have time for today, I'm sorry to say. But, Jerry, I'd like you to read these words for us, and I'd like us all to focus on these words throughout the week so that next time we'll be well prepared and ready to see exactly what they're saying. Because there's great hope here, great hope here for the believer today who's not under the law, but under grace. So, uh, Jerry, would you read for us uh, chapter 5, verses 16 through 25? I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, jealousy, um, see, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelers, and the like, of which I tell you, beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thank you, Jerry. So there we see a description of the life of the maturing believer under the fullness of God's grace. It's a description. It's not a theological statement, but he's making some uh, points that we really need to understand if we would uh, understand what the whole dynamic of Christian living under grace is all about, right? And that's to contrast to really two uh you can say, looking at it from the highest level, two ways of life. There's the life of the unbeliever, which is being dominated by the flesh and its works, right? And the life of the believer, which has the new nature bringing forth fruit. He calls it fruit even, right? Starting with love. Love is, as I said, the pinnacle of it all, right? But notice he can't help himself by referring to the law. Verse 23, against such there is no law. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit springs forth independently of works of law, 
requirements of law, religious systems or anything else. It's the fruit of the spirit operating within us. And we are bringing forth, therefore, the desires of the new nature in that case, rather than the desires of the old nature, right? But the exact way that happens isn't detailed here, except by a few words when he he refers to, in verse 16, walking in the spirit, and then uh, in verse 25, living in the spirit, okay? So what he's saying is that if we walk in the spirit, then the works of the flesh will not dominate. And he's actually even telling us why and how. And that's in verses verse 17, okay? So next time what I want to do is explain what verse 17 means for you that you might understand what this dynamic is, what this empowering is. How is it that believers who still have the old nature, but also have a new nature, how is it that believers can actually live above the power of the flesh? How is it possible? And I think there's great confusion about that today, being taught, because most teaching about this is either psychological or uh, make statements that are simply false about how God is working today, how the Spirit works today, as opposed to how the Spirit will work in the future in the Millennial Kingdom, which is actually quite different than how the Spirit is working today. So next time we'll look into that to see how uh, this dynamic operates. But let me just say, and you can study this on your own this week, but we just looked at a verse, and I'll read it again for you. Remember how he he said that uh, the flesh had already been crucified? <laughs> I've lost track of it. It says, we have crucified the flesh with its evil desires. Remember that verse? That's true of Every believer, not only those who are mature, not only those who are spiritual. Paul's point is that believers today, because God has counted us to be in Christ, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, right? And so we've already been, from God's point of view, placed in Christ. Therefore, we've already crucified the flesh. When he died, we died in him. We've we crucified the flesh. And that truth has been imparted to us. That reality has been imparted to us. And Paul writes at length about this in Romans chapter 6. At length, Romans chapter 6. Okay? Where he says, it's by reckoning upon this truth that we have died with Christ been buried with him and been raised again. It's by reckoning upon it that we are delivered from the power of the flesh. So that's in Galatians 5.24 that Jerry just read for it. They that are Christ's have crucified. Notice it doesn't say they that are spiritual. No, this is true of all believers. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. 
Therefore, all we have to do is reckon upon that. And when we do, we walk in and by the Spirit. And therefore, we're delivered from the power of the flesh. It's not true at all times. It's only true when you're reckoning upon this precious truth. So that's why the knowledge of this dynamic that Paul is uh, giving us here uh, access to is so critical. Well, praise God for his grace and its abundance. These verses have changed my life uh, over the years greatly, and I trust they have yours too. And there's yet more growth, but praise God we have this precious truth to not only to encourage us, but to empower us. As God's grace works, we are enabled to reign in life by one man, Jesus Christ. Praise God. So are there any comments or questions today before we close in prayer? Oh, wonderful lesson. Thank you, Jim. This is such a blessing and it's so encouraging. It is, isn't it? It's it's overwhelming even to consider, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my. Well, next time we'll uh, look further into Galatians 5 and uh, also into Romans 7, which is the sort of complementary teaching. Those two chapters give the whole dynamic of Christian living under grace, and it's so clearly stated. Really, we have no excuse for not understanding it. Paul devoted so much teaching to it. Praise God. Any other comment before we pray today? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the glories of your grace. Thank you that you gave this truth to Paul for our edification and teaching. Even more importantly, for our salvation, that we might be saved by grace through faith alone, not of our works, uh, because our works cannot glorify you, Father, unless they spring forth from the new nature you've uh, placed within us. So, Father, thank you so much uh, for this teaching, and may you write it upon our hearts that we might never forget it. The enemy is all about and tempting us and teaching us, or at least trying to, uh, uh, in ways that are contrary to grace. And so, Father, uh, please uh, give us uh, a fortified spirit that uh, we're built up by grace to the degree that uh, really the pinnacle is love and not the works of the flesh, but uh, love and all those other wonderful aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that are just so precious indeed. Thank you, Father, for each one gathered here today under the hearing of your word. We pray that we would go forth and be a witness and a testimony to others of what you've taught us, that Christ himself, our risen Savior, might be glorified in all that we do and say. May we be an instrument, Father, uh, for others that some may be saved and others may be built up in the precious faith. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name, amen and amen.